Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi Joe. Hello. How are we going? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> One KN. One KN. Feeling fresh. Very fresh and enjoying the time. <laughs> Kia ora, no mai harumai kitiao hurihanga. Hello and welcome to our changing world, ko Clerk and Canon Tane. When I run, I try to distract myself. I try really hard not to think about what's going on in my body. I listen to excellent RNZ podcasts. Hi there, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. I look at the scenery, especially any passing doggos. Oh, hello, puppy. Because the moment I focus inwardly on my laboured breathing or my achy muscles... I realise just how uncomfortable running makes me, and I inevitably slow to a halt. But that's not the case for Dr. Kate Thomas. So immediately on starting exercise, our breathing rate and depth will increase, and within a couple minutes, heart rate as well. Blood flow redistribution starts happening, so we're sending more blood to the active muscle so it can contract. And this is stressful for the body, but in a good way, good kind of stress. And the more we do it, the more efficient we become at tolerating the stress. Kate is an exercise physiologist at the University of Otago. And her running buddy is Dr. Joe Donnelly, a researcher at Manaki Manoa at the University of Auckland and a neurology specialist in training at Auckland Hospital. So both of them think about what's happening to our brains and bodies under stress as part of their work. And both like to run. A lot. Which is why I find myself standing in a large, open-sided shed at Mount Difficulty Winery in Bannockburn, Central Otago, on a wintry Friday evening. Now, I wish this was to cosy up to a fire and sample some of the goods, but no. Kate, Joe and many others are here for a race briefing for the Mount Difficulty Ascent. Testing, testing, one, two, three. All right, thanks very much, folks, for hanging around. That's Terry Davis, the race creator and organiser. I want to make it very clear in your head that this this is a different kind of event from one you've probably done before. Key thing is, it is really steep. You know how steep it is because you're just standing there and you reach out with your hand and there's the ground. The ground's just there. So it is really, really steep. It's a super cold evening. Breath-fogging, double-jacket kind of cold. Everyone is kind of huddled together and on their faces you can see a mixture of excitement and nerves, with the latter taking more of a hold as Terry continues his briefing. You have a vertical 500 metres and one kilometre of travel. This is where you stow your, um, your walking poles away and you use your hands to grab onto the time. So time is the herb and um, that's all over the hill and that's pretty good. It's pretty solid, you can grab onto that. Don't go grabbing onto the briar or the matagowrie 
There's a couple of bushes, a couple of caprosmas look like Madagari, but they don't have the thorns, so they're fine. And then you get lulled into a false sense of security, think, oh, this is a good bush, and then the next one will be a Madagari. And yeah, they've got thorns like, you know, three centimetres long. So um, be careful fraternising with the foliage out there. Running um, and botany. There are two different yeah, so looped lengths. Kate has signed up for the 25 kilometres and Joe for the 44 kilometres, which is just over marathon length. And actually, these are quite short distances for them in terms of what they sometimes do. They've done several ultramarathons between them, races that are more than 50 kilometres in length and up to 100 kilometres for Joe. But the challenge here is the climb. A marathon up a mountain. You know, I design my races, I like, I like you to go through the full spectrum of the human condition. And in that second part of the 44, that's when you're going to start to feel some hate. And that, that's what keeps me warm inside. Um, I love that because you don't grow from, you know, sitting in front of TV eating pizza and being all comfy and warm. You grow from being out there. and It's all about the struggle and the um, suffering. So uh, you're welcome. Right then. That's probably enough. You want to get home and uh, warm up and get some carbs into you. Big day tomorrow. Thank you. I check in with Joe and Kate to see how they're feeling. So hearing him remind us about how steep and how technical and how dangerous it is, I'm feeling a bit more scared than I was 10 minutes ago. Yeah, I think the same. I think I'm appropriately scared and I probably... (laughs) needed that otherwise I would have slept too well <laughs> good because you want to be low on sleep before yeah, you that's tackle right. this 44 kilometers <laughs> um, what's your area of research uh, my area of research is uh, put simply how the body and the brain responds to stress and so in the in the past I've done the stress being high altitude and low oxygen and more recently I've done the stress being trauma to the brain and how the blood vessels respond and even more recently lack of blood flow to the brain during a stroke and how the the brain can respond to that. And uh, I mean what you're going to do tomorrow is going to put your body under stress and I suppose you've got many years of researching of studying physiology both of you. Is this something that you think about when you're running? Oh, I think, well, speaking for myself, 100% of the time I'm always thinking about what's happening, but all we have, well, we used to have nothing, now we have, we know what our heart rate is, but always thinking about where's this blood flow going, where's our glucose levels at, how's, how are our ketones going. Um, so I think, yeah, we're always trying to think what's happening inside our body and how it's making us feel how crap we're actually feeling. <laughs> What does exercise do to the body? And I mean, okay, just firstly, I mean like the level of exercise that, say, I might do. Like, okay, I'm going to go for a 5K run. What kind of things are happening physiology-wise in my body? Oh, when you go for a 5K run, you, um, you initially your heart rate's going to go up to try and supply more blood to the exercising muscles. Um, very quickly that happens. Um, so the blood flow distribution throughout your body will change uh, to the muscle, to the brain, will shut off to some areas of your body as well. Part of that is also to start a thermoregulatory response, so to start getting blood flow to the skin to keep you cool if it's warm conditions. Of course, that's not going to be a problem for us tomorrow. 
your metabolism's going to change, so where you get your fuel from and how the cells are supplied is, is going to change once you start exercising. Yeah. And then for the kind of things that you guys are doing, so ultramarathon is, is generally considered 50k plus, but tomorrow you're running up an extremely steep hill, so it's going to feel like ultra on your body. What kind of is the extra bit that happens in your body when you push it that bit harder? Well, I, I think the one of the main parts is that the duration has gone for so much longer and you've you start to run out of the easily accessible fuel. You use all the glucose that's in your bloodstream, you start to use the glucose that's in your liver, you use the glucose that's in your muscle, and so you have to find some other way to fuel your uh, muscles and fuel your brain. And so inevitably that means breaking down other stuff. It's good if you're breaking down fat, but we also have to break down a bit of muscle, and so it can. the longer a race gets, the more we're having to use maybe less desirable fuels to keep us moving. I think other things, I guess, especially with a race like this, when we've got lots of uh, steep downhill running, there's a lot of muscle damage that happens. Yeah, and then the temperature of, of the uh, environment can affect things as well. So in, this, in these cold conditions, we, if you're moving too slowly, you might actually still be cold, and so you're you know, battling against that as well in terms of shivering. Uh, if it's too hot, you've got a different problem on your hands. And, yeah, again, that's not going to bother us tomorrow in the middle of June. But that's in, in long races, your body temperature beca- often becomes something that's uh, much more critical to your performance. Yeah. And how did you both get into this kind of ultramarathon, like longer distance running? Oh, that, I'm not sure. I think it's just uh, one of those things you just sort of... G- do a half marathon and then see if you can do a marathon and then kind of it's just gone from there and for me it's just about the adventure. Yeah I think quite similar to Kate. You can either get into it like Kate says because you're a, a runner and you start to run for longer or you get it get into it because you're a walker and you start to move a bit faster and I probably went from the latter doing tramping and things like that. That's the like the how you can do it but then there's the why and I think that comes down to this uh this the cornucopia of experiences you get. You get a month within a, a day when you're doing these ultra marathons. You can feel a million bucks one moment, and then you're going up the steep hill like Terry was describing, and you're feeling absolutely awful, like you can't do a step further. And then half an hour later, you're you're fine again. And I don't know why that's addictive, but it it is. <laughs> and what's happening to your brain on these long runs? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I wish I knew what was happening to my brain. I think it's really struggling a lot of the time because the muscles are just demanding so much energy, so much blood flow, and you're having to deal with the temperature as well, and so the blood flow is being distributed to other places, and so certain parts of your brain suffer from that, and I think that's when we can get into trouble making silly decisions about not putting that extra layer of clothing on, or no, I don't really need to eat anything, even though you haven't eaten anything for a while. So... I think I'd really like to know why my brain is doing the things it's doing. (laughs) All right, I better let you guys get warm and also get those carbs. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Best of luck tomorrow. Thanks very much. Thank you. Hey, are we ready? Take your marks. Get set. Go!
It's a cold morning, just two degrees, and clouded in. Joe and Kate set off along the road in front of the winery, headed for the hills. And we'll come back to them in a bit. But first, I want to introduce you to Kate's research. I caught up with her a few weeks before the race in a University of Otago lab based in the Dunedin Hospital, where someone else was exercising. Yeah, so we're in the middle of one of our experiments this morning. This participant will be, she's come in fasted, so she had her last meal at 12 hours ago last night, and then she came in this morning. We've done a few resting measurements, and she's now on the bike for three hours, and we take some intermittent measurements throughout this trial. And why? Why are you putting her through this? Um, Yeah, good question. Uh, I guess we all probably know that exercise as well as how much food and what we eat is important for our health and well-being. What we're doing here is trying to combine some of these stresses, in this case exercise and fasting, to create a healthy environment for the brain. And we're doing a lot of different trials to sort of really work out how best to isolate or combine these stresses to create that environment. When Kate talks about stress here, she doesn't mean that feeling of having 150 unread emails in your inbox. What she means is pushing the body's different systems. I'm essentially an exercise physiologist, which means that I uh, study how the body responds and adapts to exercise and other environmental stresses, which includes things like heat, cold and high altitude. I'm talking about stress in the good sense, stress that leads to adaptation. Can you give me an example? Like, is this, you know, why we train in the gym and we put our body under stress by lifting things and then our muscles get bigger? Is that yeah, exa- exactly. Exercise is a prime example because it stresses so many different body systems in a way that perturbs them, but afterwards they recover and they then respond to that stress to be better able to tolerate it, for example, and that's fitness. You you gain fitness by repeatedly um, putting your body under the stress of exercise. So with this experiment, you're kind of stressing with both exercise and the fasting, Mm -hmm. and the idea is to see what kind of benefits the body has over the long term? Yeah, so this this study is very much more mechanistic. We are... um, just trying to really pull the levers as much as possible, try different protocols with exercise and fasting in isolation and combined to understand more about what's going on in the blood, in the brain, and how um, the metabolism changes. The end goal would then be to see if doing this over and over leads to beneficial adaptations for the brain. But for this study specifically, we're just trying to understand more about what's happening. So in terms of the actual experiment, um, and you're keeping a close eye on your timer here because soon what's going to happen? Yeah, so uh, this participant's been cycling for almost an hour, so we're just going to take a few measurements at the hour time point. I'm going to put a mask on her face. We're interested in her breathing, so we're interested in the oxygen she's using and the carbon dioxide she's breathing out. And from that, we can understand a bit about the state of metabolism her body's in. We're also measuring heart rate as we go. We are measuring blood glucose continuously, and I'll also take intermittent samples for lactate and ketone bodies, so different products of metabolism. We're also measuring blood samples um, throughout so that we can, again, measure those products of metabolism um, more closely in the blood. Basically, as you stress the body through fasting or exercise, you push it to change what it's using for fuel. This is not an experiment on how best to improve athletic performance. 
Kate isn't interested in how many kilometres or how fast this volunteer will cycle over the three hours. She's focused on what fuels the body, and in particular the brain, are using. She's now put the mask on the volunteer, and it's picking up all that information about oxygen in, carbon dioxide out, and breathing rate. So I'm just measuring blood glucose from a finger prick at the moment. We've also got a continuous glucose monitor stuck in the back of her arm, so for the next couple of days I can assess blood glucose continuously as well. That's 5.1 M, so that's a pretty normal exercising blood glucose. Even though she's fasted, we're pretty well able to regulate our blood glucose for the first couple of hours of exercise. It will probably decline uh, by the end of the three-hour period. Glucose is the preferred energy source for the brain. But this study is aiming to see how you can switch the brain to using other energy sources. And what happens when you do? As we age, our brain's ability to use glucose declines, and that's even more the case in neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. What is important is that the brain can actually use other fuels, and some of these, for example, are ketone bodies produced during fasting and lactate produced during high-intensity exercise. So one of, one of the theories uh, and what we're trying to explore in this study is whether if we provide the brain with alternative substrates, how it chooses to use those and what that does for the brain's environment. So we think that by switching the brain away from using glucose as its main fuel to one of those other substrates, ketone bodies or lactate, that that triggers a bunch of pathways in the brain that help promote neural plasticity, cognitive function in general, resilience to stress. At all the important time points, I'm actually taking a venous blood sample because from that we can measure all the substrates at once, the glucose, the lactate, the ketones. And then probably the most important thing we're measuring is a small protein in the blood called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, and that's a protein that protects the brain and is highly linked to these protective processes with exercise and fasting. And so we're measuring if the interventions were um, putting our participants through causes BDNF to increase in the blood. And then with the cognitive test, we're able to see if the changes in BDNF in the blood relate to how they perform in the cognitive test. So across the next couple of days, the participant will also take these cognitive tests to see how well their brain is working. The test assesses different things like reaction time, decision-making, spatial function, memory, attention, and focus. Because Kate is, as she puts it, trying to pull the levers, there are four different experimental setups that each participant goes through. There's a three-day fast where we don't encourage them to do any exercise, but they go about their normal daily life, and we measure things every 24 hours. Then there's a condition where they come in and do the three-hour bike, but we feed them glucose with a drink throughout the trial so that their glucose is not being depleted. And then we continue tracking them for two more days again. So that condition is helping us to, to see if the exercise alone is good for the brain. Then there's another condition where we combine the exercise and the fast and see if there's a synergistic effect, if the combination of the exercise and fasting provides more substrates, different substrates for the brain to use. Um, and that's obviously the hardest one to perform. We're doing the exercise at the start of the fast because we think that accelerates the process of creating these new substrates, making the brain switch away from glucose earlier. 
And then the fourth condition, we have the participant come in and just drink a ketone drink. So that's basically taking an exogenous supplement, just providing the substrate, providing the ketone bodies without any exercise, without any fasting. So they would still have normal blood glucose. They haven't done any exercise. And from that, we're able to then see is it something just about the ketones or is it something else around being in the state of starvation or the state of post-exercise that triggers some of these pathways for the brain? And, it, I mean, it would be super easy for all of us if it was just condition four, right? You take a ketone supplement. <laughs> yeah, but. exactly. I, I think it's more complicated than that. I think there's more going on around being in the state of starvation or... Um, exercise the stress of exercise that triggers all these different pathways that leads to the brain being more resilient as opposed to just providing it with ketones and still having glucose freely available in the blood yeah it's never the easy answer is it but it's not as if kate expects us all to be rushing off to do three-day fasts either she's very clear that this is a discovery phase we're testing this in young, healthy people so that we can really push the boundaries of what's tolerable and really, uh, I guess, pull the lever as much as possible and work out the different patterns, the different responses, the magnitude of effect uh, as clearly as possible and understand the mechanisms behind changing the brain's metabolism. It would then take a bit of tweaking to make some sort of protocol that might be applicable to the general population because this is definitely not it. Kate is aiming to have 20 participants go through these four different trials. How then does she recruit people? I presume there was some kind of incentive or reward, but no. I haven't had to convince anybody to do this. People have found me really in, in wanting a challenge and have heard that we, you know, do hard experiments and there'd be, you know, a hundred friends or colleagues I could suggest this to and they would tell me right where to go but you know you can't convince people to do this they either off the bat are genuinely interested and curious about pushing themselves and seeing what happens and learning some physiology or they just not want a bar of it so yeah there's it's there's two types of people in this I think yeah <laughs> and it's very clear which type of person Kate is yeah, I'm one of the participants. I'll be going through all the trials myself, but I've also done all of the pilot testing leading up to working out this exact protocol. We've done equivalent um, protocols on a treadmill, on a rowing machine, on a bike, different durations of fasting, just to try and work out what would be the most optimal for this. So I'm, I've, ha I've had a bit of experience with the hardship I'm putting the participants through yeah <laughs> and outside of this lab and doing the trials to set up the experiment you also put yourself through other voluntary hardship yeah <laughs> yes yeah I'm a an ultra runner uh just a runner I'd say I have spent a lot of time running um and again that's maybe a similar mentality is just wanting to challenge myself see what I can do yeah Near the top of some hill. Don't know which one. Hello. They're all big. Here we go. Can't see the top, that's kind of a relief. Just have to keep going up. Yeah, Kate's not running in this clip, but from the video footage, the hill looks almost vertical, so there's no judgment here. For the purposes of this podcast study, Joe Donnelly also recorded some videos as he went, using his own suffer scale as a reference. Okay, so we are 
about nine kilometres into Mount Difficulty, just done the first hill, Nipple Hill, coming up to the second. Feeling pretty good at the moment, uh, on the suffer scale, 10 being wanting to crawl over there, lie down and die, I'm probably, probably at about a four, not too bad. See how we go up this hill. Alright, so we're two hours in, about 12 kilometres or so. Lovely section here and the, the frost above the clouds. Feeling a bit of elation now, must have some endocannabinoids. I'm probably at negative one on the suffer scale, feeling a million bucks. Whoa! Okay, at about K20, I think probably about halfway up the biggest climb of the day to Mount Difficulty. I have to say, I'm struggling quite a bit. Probably an eight, eight out of 10 on the suffer score. That will keep going. Luckily, he never hit a 10. Kate cruised home from her 25 kilometres looking super fresh, elated with the run and ready for more. Joe arrived in several hours later, definitely looking a little bit more dishevelled, but happy. Joe, you've just finished up. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling pretty tired, but like super satisfied, I would say. Yeah, it was an awesome day out, awesome adventure. You have a beer in one hand and a <laughs> box of hot chips in the other. You're refueling. Yeah, I didn't have much uh, solid food up there, um, so I'm carb replenishing at the moment. In terms of the, the longer distance races that you guys run, Kate, you were saying 14 hours is kind of the longest that you have done before. What about for you, Joe? I did a, it was 27 and a half hours uh, earlier in the year. It was really tough to compare because um, though this was like, beast, yeah, it? a lot shorter, this was definitely not a lot easier than a 27 hour race. And I think it's not only the vertical uh, distance we had to do, but it was also like pretty rough. It wasn't even tracks for a lot of it. So it was really using your hands and your mouth and whatever you could uh, use to help claw your way up the slope. Did you make sure to grab the time rather than the Madagaudi? Yes, yes, I definitely did. <laughs> but ultramarathons, kind of this long, super long distance running is just becoming more and more popular. Is it that, like, the buzz, the kick that you get off it that's that's kind of driving that popularity? Yeah, I think definitely it's the, the buzz that people get, both, like, when they're doing it, the, you know, the roller coaster of emotions and uh, suffering that can reverse itself, which is quite a powerful feeling. But then at the end, you have that sense of achievement, which is hard to uh, hard to replicate with other things. The finish line elation, yeah. And I think, that, like you say, the journey of what you experience, the ups and downs during a long run, you can't experience that doing anything else in the same amount of time, yeah. you know? An eight-hour run today and the experiences you've had, you can't spend another eight hours and get, any, get that same experience. There's just no way to have all those emotions and feelings and thoughts, is there? There is something science appears to waver about as more research adds to our knowledge. Caffeine is good, caffeine is bad, a little bit of alcohol could lower blood pressure short term, any amount of alcohol is carcinogenic. But like anthropogenic cause climate change, some things science wholly agrees on. And one of those is that exercise is good for you. You don't have to fast for three days or run a marathon up a mountain. Every little bit helps. So get out there. Woo. 
thanks to Dr. Kate Thomas of the University of Otago, Dr. Joe Donnelly of the University of Auckland, and Mount Difficulty Ascent Race Director, Terry Davis. Thanks also to Kate's experiment participant, who asked not to be named, but was happy to be recorded while cycling. Ko Kraken Kananaho te kaihotu o tēne hōtaka. I āwhina mai a Justin Gregory, rawa ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this one with help from Justin and Ellen. Sound engineering was by William Saunders and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Kia whaia i te au hurehanga i tētahi taupanga paiake kia koe. Follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast app. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds. We've got some photos and videos from the race to share with you there. And we'll also post these on Twitter and Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. If you enjoy the episode, please help spread the word by telling your friends and family. Tēnā koe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.